Well, our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 29. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he took his place with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They became greatly distressed and began to say to one another, Surely not I, Lord. He answered, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to the one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one to have not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. He replied, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took the loaf of bread, and after, after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup. After giving thanks, he gave it, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. May God bless the reading of the word. Well, today is our third week in our Taste and See series. I don't know about you, but I have really enjoyed having a specific focus on food and our faith throughout the month of July. On the very first week, we looked at how Jesus talked about food a lot in his parables and used mealtimes as an entry point for relationship, even with unlikely friends and disciples. Last week, Sterling preached about the history of animal sacrifice and about how Christ's final sacrifice for all means that we don't have to worry about those animal sacrifices anymore. Beyond these Sunday sermons, we've tried to be intentional with food and fellowship throughout the series. You know, we've had these mini brunches between the services, which there will be another one today. We have fed college students three times. Our children have been eating together around the table during children's chapel. You know, they're donuts. The youth have had taste and see experiments. We have shared recipes. We've given out food at the Joseph Project. We've shared in Holy Communion. And each of these has been an opportunity to remember that food is a powerful thing. It reminds us of our Creator God, it connects us to one another, and it is something for which we can give thanks each and every day. So today, we are going to consider the very last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. Because the rules in the food for Passover are regulated in the Bible, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the yearly Passover was quite predictable for the Jewish people. Israelites would gather with family and friends, and the meal and the structure of the time was mostly the same each and every year. Do you have holiday meals like this with your family? It makes me think of Thanksgiving meal with my family because it is the same each and every year. I know we're all sort of mandated to eat turkey, but I mean the menu each year is exactly the same. The structure is exactly the same. The only thing that changes about Thanksgiving is whose house we go to. But this is how it goes. 
We gather with my mom's family somewhere around 10 o'clock. And when we get there, my uncle will have brought smoked cheese and charcuterie meats and crackers, which we snack on while the food is being finished cooked. We have the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade on the TV, and we all just snack around while we're waiting. We will shoot to eat at 12, but it'll always be more like 1.30 or 2. The menu is a turkey, mashed potatoes, gravy, one with giblets, one without giblets, sweet potatoes, pineapple casserole, green bean casserole, deviled eggs, rolls, an assortment of cold fruit salads, which people don't really like, and then there will be desserts later on. So my granddad is always the one to pray before this meal, and he will always thank God for the day, for our blessings, and for the many things that we have to be thankful for in this life. Then we make our plates, we sit around the table, and we all eat way too much food. We take a break, like I'm sure all of you do, before coming back for dessert, where there will be pecan pie, there will be pumpkin pie, there will be apple cake, and homemade whipped cream. We will eat that before we all make leftover plates and go home and have them for dinner after we've woken up from a nap. Does this sound familiar? Do you have meals like this, holiday traditions that you can expect? You can count on them because they are so predictable. Well, that's what this Passover meal should have been like for the disciples. They would have expected certain things to happen They would have expected certain foods, the routine. This meal is one that celebrated their hearts and minds on God's deliverance of them out of the hands of slavery in Egypt, out of the hands of Pharaoh. But also during the meal, they recall the bitterness that their ancestors endured when they were slaves in Egypt. But again, the focus is on celebrating God's goodness in this meal. But it was during this meal that was usually so routine, so predictable, that Jesus chose to reveal his coming betrayal and to make a new covenant with his disciples. I think the most famous depiction of the Last Supper is a mural by by Leonardo da Vinci, and it was painted in Milan, Italy. Can you picture the one I'm thinking about? They're all sitting at a long table. Jesus is in the middle with his hands out, and there are six disciples on each each side of him. There's a meme that goes around each year, around Easter time, where Jesus walks into a restaurant and he says, I would like to get a table for 26, please. And the waiter says, but there are only 13 of you. And he said, yeah, but we all want to sit on the same side. (laughs) Why are they all sitting on the same side? I don't know. But this painting has become the way that many of us do picture and imagine the Last Supper. But the table customs in ancient Israel would have actually been really different at the time. In Israel, in Jesus' time, most meals would have been had sitting on the floor, cross-legged, people sitting around a common bowl that they dipped in together. However, the Pharisees insisted that every Jew, no matter how poor they are, had to have at least one meal where they got to recline and lie down like the rich, and that was the Passover each year. So during the Roman Empire, most banquets like this were held in a triclinium. A triclinium is a room equipped with a table that's six to ten inches from the ground, and there are cushions around it. It's set up in a U-shape position. And the guest would recline around the outside edges of this U-shaped table, and food would be served from the middle. 
In all the pictures we have of these triclinium tables and banquets, the guests are reclining on their left arm and they're eating with their right arm. Another interesting thing about these table customs is that there were places that were higher honor around the table. So the host, whoever the host was of the meal, always sat in the second spot from the left side of the U. And so in this case, the host was Jesus of this meal because he invited his disciples to come and share the Passover with him. So that's the most important seat at the table. It's the number two spot on the left side of the U wing. The seat of honor is seated to the left of the person who is the host, the most important person. The next most important person was seated to the right of the host. The least important person was sat all the way across the U on this side. And so it got, you got either more important or less important as you went around the circle, depending on where you were sitting. So this is interesting, right, that people used to eat this way, that they would recline, that they would kind of lay down while they ate and lean on their one arm. But it also tells us something about the Last Supper. Matthew says, when it was evening, Jesus took his place with the 12. So that would have been that second place. And while they're eating, he says, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Just some light dinner conversation. <laughs> As the disciples became distressed, they all began to ask, surely not I, Lord. It, it would never be me. And Jesus says, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl will betray me. The Last Supper is one of those stories that's in all four of the Gospels. And we have so much information about these table customs from ancient Israel, from history, from all over the things. So when you look at all four of the Gospels and you consider these table practices, we learn that if Judas was sharing a bowl with Jesus at this triclinium table, he was sitting to his left. Now, what does this mean? That is the seat of highest honor that Judas was given at the Last Supper. What an interesting thing that Jesus would have done, giving Judas the best seat in the house, the seat of most honor, knowing that he was going to betray him just days later. After this shocking pronouncement, Jesus does something else unexpected. He changes up the routine of this Passover meal and makes a new covenant with his disciples. The whole thing about this meal is remembering what God has done for them, remembering that God has saved them, that God has made a covenant with them in the past that is true, that is good, that is trustworthy even now. But here, Jesus expands that covenant by redefining elements of the meal's food and drink. Throughout Scripture, God has used bread to sustain his people. When the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God sent bread to provide nourishment. Jesus continued this as he fed the multitudes with five loaves and two fish. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the unleavened bread of the Passover, which recalled Israel's deliverance from slavery, and he blessed it, he broke it, and he said to his disciples, Take, eat, this is my body. Similarly, Jesus reframes the meaning and understanding of the cup at the Passover meal. Wine has always been used as part of the Passover story. It was used during the meal to symbolize the blood of the Passover lamb, which was poured out for the atonement of sin 
And over time, it also became a symbol of celebration for the Jewish people. In John, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine, again, continuing this theme of celebration and abundance with wine. But now Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. No longer will this bread and this blood represent what they have represented, but they will represent the very body of Christ. This is a meal that somehow, mysteriously and miraculously, reaches backwards both into the story of history of Israel, and it reaches forward into the story of Jesus, which is yet to have happened, and Jesus redefines what it means to break bread together. Jesus is establishing this new covenant with his disciples, even as it is about to be broken in just a few days. But there's a crucial part of this new covenant. Jesus tells them why this is happening. He says, this, take, eat, this is my body. And then Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. In another translation, it says new covenant. Poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Greek word here translated as forgiveness can also be translated as remission or deliverance. It denotes a total release from bondage or imprisonment. It is a pardon so great, it is, if, it is as if the crime or sin was never committed in the first place. A total wash. When Jesus says that his blood will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, he is, of course, foreshadowing what will happen in his death and resurrection. But once again, Jesus has used this time around a table to reveal a divine truth about God's never-ending love and unmerited mercy towards humanity. While the disciples may not understand what Jesus means when he says, this is my body and this is my blood, they soon will. And by breaking bread, even with the one who will hand him over to be killed, Jesus is telling them something else about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is a reality flowing with grace and reconciliation, no matter what your past sins are. Because the blood that is going to be poured out is poured out for all who wish to receive it. In Luke's account of the Last Supper, after the instructions are given with the bread and the wine, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. That is a phrase that has been inscribed in altars, it has been stitched into pyramids, it has been written into choir anthems and held onto by Christians ever since. We call this meal by many names, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, the Eucharist, the Mass. It is a sacrament with which we hold high regard, and we should. But let us not forget how this practice came to be. It all began with a routine, predictable, celebratory meal that Jesus had around a table with his very closest friends. Before there was a church, there was a table where Jesus gathered with saints and sinners, believers and skeptics, disciples and outsiders, and showed them what it means to extend grace. And now, over 2,000 years later, here we are still doing this in remembrance of him. We come to the Lord's table to remember that we are loved, 
and that we are forgiven. In this final meal, Jesus continuing, continued his theme of making space at the table. There's always room for one more. There was no gatekeeping, there was no list of requirements, and there was no promise for future faithfulness. Jesus willingly had his body broken and his blood poured out for all of humanity, for all of time. Therefore, in the United Methodist Church, we do celebrate an open table, meaning that all are welcome and invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. We come to the table not because we are worthy, but because we have been invited and we have been given forgiveness. We come to the table not because we are righteous, but because we are children of God. We come to the table to be reminded of God's goodness despite our failures. So as we move towards Holy Communion later in this service, I invite you to ruminate on the power of this meal and prepare to come to the table of grace. In the name of God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen.